this is Yitzi Tovo, Building Jerusalem. Our guest today is Rabbi David Wolpe. Uh, despite numerous appearances all over television and radio, Rabbi Wolpe is uh, most proud of being Rabbi of Sinai Temple. Rabbi Wolpe, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. When you, when you had your bar mitzvah, you first read from the Torah, was it clear to you then where you wanted to go? Oh, no, not at all. No, I never intended to be a rabbi. Um, I even entered rabbinical school basically because I wasn't doing anything else, and I did it on spec, and I thought, we'll see if this takes or if it doesn't. And if not, I was going to go back to my original plan of being an English professor. An English professor? Yes. Did you have a, a, did you have a, fav- a favorite poet at the time? I had a few then and now, but probably my favorite poet was A.E. Hausman, who was an English poet. And uh, I had uh, spent a year in, at the University of Edinburgh studying Scottish and English literature. And, but I ended up here. You ended up here? Yes. Well, I, I got to say, just um, meeting you in, in person today for the first time, I, I, I'm trying to imagine you in the garb of an English professor. It works. <laughs> It works very well. <laughs> Thank you. I, I can see how you could have done that easily. Yes. Instead of this. That when, was the other choice. That was the other choice. When did it shift for you? When I entered rabbinical school, basically. I mean, I, I had thought of what I wanted to do, and there was a rabbi who said, why don't you give rabbinical school a shot? My father was a rabbi in Philadelphia. I always thought it was a wonderful thing for him to do, but I never thought I would do it. Mm. And I went and really loved it, and the, the difference that I found between... Um, studying English literature at college and rabbinical school was that the professors who taught in rabbinical school were invested in their subject with their lives, not only with their minds. And that was very impressive to me. Invested with their lives, not just their minds? Yes. It's, it's, do you mean that in terms of like living out ritual? Living out ritual, discussion? but also because they, they were teaching something that was essential to who they were as individuals. It's not that they picked a subject. I'm going to be an English literature professor instead of a history professor. Mm -hmm. It was rather that they felt what I suppose you would call a calling. Um, And and that persuaded me that this was going to be a much more, this was going to be a deeper and richer life. And and I think it, it unquestionably is. The other thing that I found was that and this was true when I was a professor, because I taught at a couple different universities. I taught, taught Judaica, but the same thing. Um, the, one of the maladies of being a professor is you teach the same subject to the same people every year. I mean, they're not the identical people, but right. they're the same age. So you have a parade of 19 or 20-year-olds to whom you teach a subject. And that can be exciting and wonderful, but I don't think it forces you to grow nearly as much as when you have to deal with people of all ages and you have to sit by somebody's bed when they're dying and you have to marry couples and uh, do bar and bat mitzvahs. It's a different, it's a very different life. So Fair. Um, you, you've been in the public eye for a lot of your career. Um, I perhaps um, uh, most, uh, well, with the most zeal, um, when the New Atheist Movement sprang into, into action a few years ago, you um, had long, long debates with Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens. Yes. When you reflect back on those days, do they seem far away? Do they still seem 
Um, well, I still see Sam from time to time, so that's not, it doesn't seem quite as far. Obviously, Hitchin, sadly, is no longer with us. Um, I would say the, the, um, the fire of the atheist movement has a little bit burned out. That doesn't mean that there aren't still people who are what we might call Fabrenta atheists, but, but, it, but some of the novelty of it is gone. Uh, I still get comments all the time on Twitter and on Facebook from people who, uh, you know, who are um, all aflame with the awfulness of religion. Uh, but I don't think that it has quite as exciting and sexy a public presence as it did 10 years ago. Right. Yeah. When you say you still see Sam from time to time, I take it this isn't in more at, debates. At conferences. At conferences. Right, of different kinds, yeah. Rock on. I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to figure out which, which sort of conferences. TED. I've gone to the TED conference a few times. Something called Dialogue, which is a conference that is uh, originally was sponsored by Peter Thiel that happens at different places in the world where people get together and discuss various issues. Um, places like that. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And do you, do you feel like um, the... So I, I, I was talking about this with a friend as some time ago, and he said that what the way that the, the way that culture works is that something will show up and become the thing that everyone's arguing about for right. a while, and then one side will win, and then like people will stop arguing about it. Oh, I don't think it works that way. You don't think? It works no, I think what happens is eventually just the subject subsides. Nobody wins. Hmm. Um, I mean, in great cultural arguments, sometimes people win. Sometimes, uh, but but I think. Generally, what happens is that the culture moves on to other issues as that issue becomes less urgent. So I don't think anybody won necessarily the religion atheist debate. Um, you could have the exact same debate today, but I do think that it, uh, it was a, lar a large part of it was fueled by uh, Muslim fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. and, and that has become a sort of continuing feature of the landscape and is no longer I, as dependent on religious arguments. It's, be, it's moved more into the political sphere. I more think. into the political sphere. That's what it seems to me. How do, how do, how do you feel? Because that? now it's a question of how and in what way that danger is to be combated. I don't think that anybody thinks that by persuading Americans to become less religious, that's going to significantly reduce, you know, the... Right. The virulence of ISIS, for example. So, <laughs> right, fair enough. Uh, you, you said something uh, a few years ago. You said perhaps conservative Judaism ought to rename itself Covenantal Judaism. Yes, you remember. You remember saying sure. That? Um, well, I gave a speech about it at the seminary, uh, Jewish Theological Seminary. Um, the there are a lot of problems with holding the middle ground in any um, in any field whether it be political or religious. And I thought that, um, first of all, the word conservative Judaism didn't describe what the movement was very well. And second, it was not a positive slogan. That is, it didn't say, these are the things that we stand for and believe in. Mm -hmm. and, and it struck me that conservative Jews are the ones who actually maintain the most robust covenant with all the other movements. Um, and with the non-Jewish world. So conservative Jews have a commonality with orthodoxy, with reform, um, but they also tend to be the most um, prominent communal workers. There are more conservative Jews that run federations and UJA 
chapters and thing, B'nai B'rith than any other movement. And they also have a dialogue with the non-Jewish world. So I thought to describe us in terms of the different covenants we hold dear would be a better description. Uh, unfortunately, in order to make something like that work, you not only need to give a speech, but you have to then go to the streets and start organizing. Okay. And, uh, and that I did not do. Do you, do you regret not doing that? Um, I regret it not having been done. Right. I'm not sure that I regret not doing it. Excellent answer. <laughs> when you say you don't, you don't feel like it accurately um, depicts what, what yes. the movement is, is that I'm, I'm trying to, to get my head around that because c conservative means like holding on to things. Right. But obviously the conservative movement is a movement of incorporating historical um, changes in the Jewish tradition and understanding them and believing that those are dynamic and important. And so conservative isn't enough. It was done essentially out of reaction to reform. Mm -hmm. And compared to reform, it's conservative. But for its place in the religious world in general, I don't think it's a sufficient description. Right. So. And it's interesting. I remember something you, you mentioned when, when you uh, made this speech um, was that uh, it's rabbinic law is at once binding and um, changing? Is that, yes. the, is that the phrase? I don't remember if that's the phrase I use, but that's certainly been the, the philosophy of conservative Judaism. Yes. Could you unpack that philosophy? Um, that uh, in every generation, if you look at history, actually rabbinic law has changed sometimes quite considerably, even among people who believe that it is eternal and unchanging because sociological factors have a powerful impact on people, whether they like it or not, whether they're aware of it or not. Um, so what conservative Judaism essentially did was make that which was in the subconscious or buried unconscious of Judaism explicit, which is we are rabbinic Jews, but that doesn't mean that we don't change with the changing mores of a modern society. Um, what makes things different is that the pace and the vectors of change are so much faster and more extreme than they were any time in Jewish history. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes hard to keep your footing when you both want to be traditional and still change with the time. Yeah, I hear that. I mean, I've been having this conversation with a lot of people in a lot of different places. Right. Do you have a... a um, and, and one thing I keep coming back to is this idea that halacha is is changing, that rabbinic right. law shifts even while it, its core remains right. the same. What can you can you point to like historical moments where you see here clearly the law has changed? Oh, I can point to a lot of historical moments. I mean, the easiest ones are the biblical laws that were basically written out. Right. Um, I'm not just Ben Sorero More, not just stoning a rebellious son, but I mean, there was a time when Shabbos breaking was a capital offense. That disappeared pretty quickly. Um, also, uh, we can see very different attitudes towards conversion in different communities over the course of uh, Jewish tradition. In, in the Talmud, it says Rabbi Akiva used to go across the street to make a convert. In other words, we were a proselytizing religion. Hmm. That stopped with Constantine when he made proselytizing a capital offense in the, in the Christian empire. Um, so... There have been a lot of changes. I mean, even, even things that we think of as normative, like an unveiling is a new ceremony. 
Nobody did an unveiling in the Middle Ages. Nobody lit a Yorzite candle, which, as you can hear from the word, doesn't come right. Exactly. Yorzite comes from the German. (laughs) That's not a a Hebrew word. So it's it's not, I mean, it's not an unusual thing. Nobody dressed like Hasidim until 18th century Polish noblemen. Sure. Um, Nobody wore a kippah all the time for most of Jewish history. If you look at the history of the kippah, the idea that a, that a religious Jew should wear a kippah all the time doesn't really start to take hold until the 17th, 18th century with the Taz, and it's because of lo telechu that you shouldn't, basically you shouldn't look like the Goyim, so right. distinguish yourself, but not because it was a religious obligation. Uh, and in fact, in my father's uh, day, even the German Orthodox used to put on a kippah, make a bracha, take it off, eat their meal, put mm-hmm. it back on, say berkat hamazon, and then take it off again. So there are a lot of changes that we think of because we don't have a historical perspective as things were always this way, but they weren't. Uh, One other easy one, because we have music in the service, is that there was music in the temple. Mm. It stopped with the destruction of the temple, but normative Jewish prayer was accompanied with music. Look at the superscription to the Psalms, you know? Right. So, but can, do you mind if I push back a bit? No, on that? go go right ahead. Because I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to get a sense for like all the things you've mentioned. I mean, so mm-hmm. uh, the kippah wearing, for instance, is right. something that I, I'm a bit more familiar with. I think if you actually go back and read the Vilna Gaon's opinion, for instance, he seems to hold that it's obligatory during like the Amida prayer, obligatory right. during maybe obligatory during benching, um, during like after meals, and then the rest of the time. It's not, it's not, there's nothing to suggest it's mandatory and it may even be a problem because you're portraying yourself as a righteous man. Doesn't sound like you're pushing back. It sounds like you're agreeing with me. Uh, right. Well, <laughs> so, well, I mean, like I get... I like that kind of pushback. <laughs> I'm all for it. Kind of, no, but I, so what I'm trying to get my head around is, yeah. like, the, you, have the, you have the law in, in like, the, the Torah, which will often say something, like you say, that gets written out later. So right. if two, two men are fighting and a woman comes and, like, uh, seizes one of them by the generals from behind and, and crushes his testicles, right. then her hand is to be chopped off. Right. Like that's that that doesn't even that doesn't even register in the rabbinic yes. lawmaking. Like right. The rabbis look at that and they go, absolutely right. not. We're not doing this. Yeah. But like at the same time, they sort of they they write it as as like this was never done. Right. So there's the, and there's like there isn't really a. It's very difficult to get like a halachic lens, like just to you know. We don't have any historical records of it being done. So for the people who are saying that it's not, it never changes. Yeah, like to me that 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 situation that's like, even though like the text seems to suggest that obviously like this is. But one burning a Shabbos done. breaker was done. It was done explicitly in the Torah, the right. Mikoshe Shetzim. So you can't say it was never done. Sure, sure, but like I don't know that we we ever got rid of that as a rule. I think we just made it like, oh, we can't enforce this because we can't enforce capital punishment. So you're telling me that in theory, mm. every Orthodox Jew believes that when he breaks the Shabbos, he should be killed. I think in theory, every Orthodox Jew believes that if he breaks the Shabbos publicly, deliberately in a society where the Shabbos is universally kept, yes. in, in, in a way that is... If it was ever universally kept that. in Israel, it doesn't sure. seem to be true. Right. I well, mean, but but I'm saying, so you understand the idea. But yeah. The idea is things have changed enormously. I mean, look at the matrilineal descent, we know pretty clearly, came in about the time of Ezra. Mm-hmm. That's right. a major halachic change. That's a shift. That's, that, it's a that's major halachic clear. change. So... Okay, so like when from... So 
moving from from like that so that that area yeah. i understand okay. but like there seems to be a mechanism where like the sanhedrin sitting and they're they're arguing if the sanhedrin ever actually sat right. right but again that's just all history mm -hmm. it depends if you want to argue mythology from mythology that's one thing but if you want to argue history mm -hmm. first of all we don't know if the sanhedrin ever sat but we certainly don't think that all the halachic changes that have happened over history have come from the sanhedrin um and and there were changes in the Middle Ages too, not just halachic, but ideological. Mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons why people, I mean, Jews burned Maimonides' books. Sure. Jews said that God had a body in, in opposition to Maimonides saying God was incorporeal. I mean, you've read, or at least you're aware of Mark Shapiro's um, book about the, uh, what's it, it called? Idra Rabba? No, uh, no um, it's called the Something of Orthodox Theology. And it goes through the, the, all, of, all of Maimonides' principles of faith and shows how each one of them has been contradicted. Each one of them has been contradicted by major orthodox, major mm -hmm. religious thinkers throughout Jewish history. So it's only, right. by, it's only by doing surgery on our own history that we don't realize how varied and complex it really is. Okay. So no, I get that. I, all of that. The man. limits of orthodox theology, I believe. The limits called. of orthodox theology. Right. I think, yeah, I think I've encountered this book before. I haven't read it, but I have encountered it. But, but I mean, like, it seems that the Jews in exile sort of get, get what, like, Ravashi closes the Talmud mm -hmm. and then we've sort of got, like, this big, 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 big set of, like, the minutes of, yes. of the legal discussion. Yes. And there's this presumption that, like, those minutes are, are done for now. Like, we're not going to, we don't get right. to, maneuver, we don't get to change them right now, but we get to maneuver with them. Right. So like, so the yarmulke thing, like the, all that we have in the Gemara is like, oh, it's a good thing for righteous people to right. wear, to not go around beheaded. Right. And then later on, the, the rabbis, medieval commentaries and later get to play with that and decide how much they want to turn up and down the volume on that. But like in terms of stuff that's in the Gemara clearly done one way, like does, it, does that shift after so, the Gemara gets closed? Yes, it actually does. Um, some examples, honestly, are so terrible that I really, okay. I, I'm loath to talk about them here. Um, but there are other, th if you read historical essays about things that Jews did that they considered to be legitimate, um, yeah, there were a lot of differences over time. Uh, I also think that it's certainly true that modernity creates shifts unlike any previous, unlike any previous time, um, which makes sense because so many ideas got imported into Judaism, um, like to some extent, democracy, individualism, egalitarianism, which exist in Judaism, right. not they don't exist, but they certainly had nothing like the importance that they do in modern Western civilization. The and volume. therefore, what's that? The volume got turned up on the, the volume, volume got turned up right. immensely. And therefore they, they had a tremendous effect on the way that Jews practice Judaism. Sure. Yeah. Could, could I bring this like to a, in some sense, less heavy, but also more serious yeah. question. Um, the, the rise of the smartphone, mm -hmm. how, is it, how has that affected services for you? Services, because I have to tell people to turn it off all the time. Um, because people always want to tape their kid uh, on the Bema. Um, it, it's, I mean, more than how much the smartphone has affected services so far is my knowledge that this is just the beginning. It's just the beginning 
What about when these things are encoded in, I don't know, contact lenses on our eyes or things that I can't begin to imagine? It might I mean, be unsuitable to Shabbos. Right, exactly. If I, <laughs> that's right. If I had said to you, for example, 20 years ago, yeah. or when I was growing up and we all thought people were going to travel by jetpacks, if I had said, no, you know what, you're not going to travel by jetpacks, but you will have all of human knowledge in your pocket, you would have said, now that's crazy. Right. That's insane. Right. So the predictability of what the technological change will be is part of, is part of the difficulty. See, in, in ancient times, the challenge to Torah was Torah versus Aristotle, Torah versus Christianity, Torah versus Islam. Right. In modern times, the challenge is much more various. Right. It's Torah versus archaeology, um, astronomy, comparative religion, discovery of a other ancient texts, um, I don't know, uh, the rise of, of modernity and modern ideas, technology. There are so many challenges Torah versus apathy. to Torah. Right, yes, well, apathy, although I suspect apathy was always at least part of it, but, <laughs> but more now. There are so many challenges to Torah that, um, that I think the two predominant reactions are to either pretend all the challenges don't exist and to create a very small insular community which can perpetuate itself as we see, right. but loses the possibility of interacting and influencing the world, mm -hmm. or to be at sea with these vast storms and to try to hold on to the tradition while you're being tossed in all sorts of different directions and that's really hard. And even though the conservative movement may be further along in the storm than modern orthodoxy or, orthodox, or even centrist orthodoxy, if you think that homosexuality and the position of women and, and more technology and different ideas and all of that is not going to eventually pose essentially similar dilemmas to what it has already posed in the conservative movement, then I think people are being short-sighted because I think it's inevitable. By virtue of having a ship that's that's committed to the storm in some sense, you're also playing the role of the canary. Yes. It's like you're encountering the typhoon first. Right, I think, that that, I think in some ways that's true. And the great, quest, the great question of non-literalist Judaism, the great question is, can you maintain and transmit, can you create a transmissible tradition in a world where the changes are so radical. Um, because what you were asking before in your question, which I think is very perceptive, is the difference between what sociologists call a, a criminal and a revolutionary. A criminal is somebody who recognizes the rule, but they occasionally break it. Mm -hmm. A revolutionary is someone who says the rule doesn't apply to me. Okay. A lot of modern Jews are revolutionaries. Our ancestors, many of them were criminals, right? They changed the law in, in subtle or overt ways. They said the law doesn't apply to me, but they didn't say it doesn't matter to me. Right. A lot of modern Jews, it doesn't matter. So we face a vast array of challenges. We're, we're um, rapidly running out of time here, but just to, to go with this metaphor a little, a little mm -hmm. further, um, you have a, a, a fantastic reproduction of a Viking longboat. Yes here on your, on your desk. Um, and I'm, and I, I sort of, this seems like exactly the sort of vessel that would be out at sea and feel yeah, every- That's right. Do you want to know why it's there? there? Please. Because in order, so, in order that my daughter should know her genetics, both her mom and I took, went to 23andMe. Okay. And what happened was her mom turned out to be 
4% Ashkenazi Jew. And she was very disappointed, my daughter. She said, can I get something exotic? Really, it's just Ashkenazi. I said, wait, because there's a story that Wolpe comes from a, a Napoleonic soldier who converted. And I said, so maybe we'll get to, I turned out to be 99.8% Ashkenazi yeah. Jew. But those other 0.2% had some affinity with the Vikings. <laughs> so on Yom Kippur for my drush, I talked about that. And then I talked about true heroism. The true heroism was actually the 99.8%, what they survived, not what the Vikings did. Right. But one of my congregants showed up a couple of days later with the Viking ship to honor my Viking heritage, which I tortured my poor daughter about all the time. I'll talk about my Viking heritage. Um, but... Uh, but that's another example is that we can now know where we've been and who's been a part of our history and DNA testing. We live in such a different world. So, I, I mean, you hope that we can still um, use the Torah as a guide that is consistent and a through line in our lives, but it is a much more complicated enterprise than it was even 100 years ago. Sure. And I get that a lot of a lot of making it through the storm is is you don't know the next wind, you don't know the next wave, right. and you're getting ready to, to right. ride it out. But from your position on the ship, yes, where are you heading for? What's the land? What would what would things going well look like? Things going well would actually look a lot like the way they look now. Oh yeah. Yes, a viable and strong state down. of Israel, freedom for Jews to practice the way they want. Um, a large, learned Jewish community, which I think we have, the one thing that I would change is the slipping away of so many who um, the widespread ignorance, the, you know, um, the, the lack on the part of many of the passion for what Judaism can bring to their lives and to their families and to their communities and to their world. Um, but, but I am mindful of the fact that Sitting right now um, across from each other, we are two of the luckiest Jews who have ever lived. Mm. And any Jew that doesn't realize that, all they have to do is you know, turn their eyes backward and, and look at most of Jewish history. So we're incredibly, incredibly fortunate, but it's on the backs of a great deal of suffering. Well, Rabbi David Wolpe, that's a fantastic way to end Thank it. you. Thank you so much Thank for you. coming on the show.